Let me start with my daughter's joke. What did the rock say to the geologist? Don't take me for granted. Okay, we are going to be studying the book of Joel this morning, and let's open in prayer real quick. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for everyone who's here, that their hearts are desirous to hear what you have to say. And Lord, may everything that's said be you and not me. And uh, help us to be moldable in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. So, book of Joel. And I have about... 50 minutes to cover three chapters. So, Joel. The name Joel means Yahweh is God. Uh, As a book, it's one of the shorter books. It's just 234 words. I'm sorry, 2,034 words. 234 is really short. 2,034 words. Uh, There's a debate as to whether this is the first or the second written prophecy. It's either Obadiah or Joel. We don't really know exactly. It's probably the second, though. It's also the second to pick up the theme of the day of the Lord. Uh, Obadiah is also the other contender for this spot. The prophet Joel spoke to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, He never mentions the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Because he mentions no kings or other prophets, it is hard to find a definitive time for his prophecy. Um, And there's there's two viewpoints. One is that it's very early, which is the viewpoint I'm going to lean towards. And the other viewpoint is that it's after the exile, after Israel was brought back from Babylon. Um, However, it is likely, and this again, this is the view I'll lean towards, that he prophesied around the time of the wicked king, I'm sorry, queen, Athaliah, and the beginning of the reign of Joash. One argument for the dating of this book during this time frame is that no reference is made of the Babylonian, Assyrian, or, or Syrian invasion. The only enemies mentioned are the Philistines, Phoenicians, Edomites, and Egyptians. And again, this is an argument from silence. This isn't definitive. I'm not going to be argumentative about it. This is just where I lean personally. And, uh, it is interesting to read uh, if you want to look that up further. Uh, and if this is the case where he ministered early, he probably was around the time of Elisha, And if he did not know the prophet Jonah, he at least knew about him. There are several themes discussed in this short book. One of them is the day of the Lord. The second one is true repentance. The third, the battle of Armageddon. Fourth, the second coming of Christ, even though Christ is not mentioned specifically. The fifth is the judgment of the nations. And the sixth is the millennial kingdom. Now, depending on your point of view, is going to depend on how you separate the books. And there's three primary views. There's all sorts of views out there. And this is actually one of the, it's a very contested book. Because the message is applicable to all generations, but the generation to which it was written is uncertain. And so there's no clear division between when one prophecy ends and one prophecy begins. So I'm going to give you what those three are. The first is that it's Joel chapter 1 through Joel 2.27. And that is going to be called the Day of the Locusts. The second part of this view is that the last half of the book is called the Day of the Lord. Now the Day of the Locusts was supposed to be, in this point of view, a sneak peek into what the Day of the Lord would be like. So it'd be essentially like them saying, if you thought the day of locusts was bad, wait till you see what the day of the Lord is like. The second view, 
has it divided where chapter one is the day of the locust and chapter two and three is the day of the Lord. And as we continue reading, you're going to see why it's so difficult to differentiate them. And the third view, which is probably the one I lean towards the most, is the first one is the day of the locusts. The second chapter lists both short and far fulfillments as it concerns Israel in the past and Israel in the future. So it's kind of mixed up. And the third one is definitely the future restoration of Israel. And that's where I lean. I could be wrong. And so I strongly encourage you to study it after. So verse 1, verse 1 through 4. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. And let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So he says, tell it to your children. And the time is so difficult, so remarkably difficult for them that it's something that they're going to tell their children. They're going to say, I remember the plague of the locust. That's how bad it was. It would be similar to us saying, I remember when 9-11 happened. Most of us can remember where we were when it happened and the impact that it had on us. I'm sure a lot of people here went to a prayer meeting that night, if you were saved. Just, uh, you know, I remember when the San Francisco, not the 1906 one, obviously, the one in 1989 happened. Uh, it happened on October 17th. I was in junior high. We were headed out to eat for dinner, and the house rattled. The lamps were rocking back and forth, and we, were, we, lived, we weren't even close to San Francisco. We lived all the way down here, and yet we still felt it. And I remember that specifically. Um, and then I remember we got home from dinner, and on the news they were showing everything from that double-decker freeway that collapsed to the World Series being canceled for that game at Candlestick Park, which is not called that anymore. Um, just, I remember a lot of different things that happened. I remember when 9-11 happened and all those things. And different things happen generationally where we start telling things to the next generation. Uh, my grandfather was the quintessential storyteller. And we'd go over to my grandparents' house and I would sit and listen because I loved to hear his stories growing up. And he would tell me the stories that his dad told him and that his dad's his dad told him. So I would listen to these stories growing up, and I loved to hear them. And it was just generational stories that get passed down. And this is one of those big stories that was going to be passed down for them, something they were going to remember. It says, give ear, or in the NIV it says, hear this. Now, in Hebrew, it's a common term in lawsuit passages, if you're in court. And it has the idea of proclaiming a judgment in a courtroom. And this plague of locusts was going to be their sentence. That's what he's saying. This is your sentence of judgment. Now, there are two views to verse 4, and this is when it talks about the four different locusts. The first is that it's the four different stages of locust. And if you look at Wikipedia or other sites on the Internet, one person will say there's four stages of locusts. One person will say there's five stages. It doesn't matter. The point is they shed their skin and they pupate and they grow. So that's the first one. And it has something to do with, you know, when they first hatch, they crawl along the ground, they eat whatever they can reach on the ground. 
and then they continue growing where they kind of hop along. And there was actually a plague, which I'll read about, and I think Pastor Bill read about it too. It happened in 1915 in the Middle East. And eventually they get to the point where they're this full-grown locust and they're consuming everything. Now, the second view is there's four different kinds of locusts. Now, there's 24,000 different species of locust, and 80 to 90 of these species are indigenous to the Middle East. But really the ultimate point of mentioning verse 4 is that it was ultimate, total, and utter destruction for the land. For an agrarian society, they were decimated completely. Now, in 1915, there was a devastating plague of locusts that covered what is modern-day Israel and Syria. The first swarms came in March in clouds so thick they blocked out the sun. The female locusts immediately began to lay eggs 100 at a time. And they were about an inch long, about uh, pencil-thick in diameter. Witnesses say that in one square yard there were as many as 65,000 to 75,000 eggs. And National Geographic was there at the time, and they have documented witnesses that talk about everything that happened. You can go on, again, Wikipedia, the Internet. There's pages and pages and pages about this specific one. In a few weeks, they hatched, and the young locusts resembled large ants. They couldn't fly yet and got along by hopping. They marched along 400 to 600 feet a day, devouring every speck of vegetation along the way. After two more stages of molting, they became adults who could fly, and the devastation continued. A colony member who was there at the time in Israel, wrote that the locusts were so voracious and numerous that they could swarm over an unguarded infant and devour its eyes within minutes. Now, that sounds gross. I didn't mean to gross you out. But the point is the locusts, you know, we think of them as eating just vegetation. But even now, they're really indiscriminate. They'll eat whatever's there if they're hungry. And they're always hungry. Verses 5 to 7. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, wail because of new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. And this is, again, speaking of the destruction that the locusts can cause. Now, desert locusts, which are indigenous there, uh, they change colors, they develop, and they can devour their own weight, which is two grams, in fresh food in 24 hours. A ton of locusts, which is a tiny part of the average swarm, eats the same amount of food in a single day as 10 elephants or 25 camels or 2,500 people. It's just a, a ton, a small part of a swarm. Now, a desert locust swarm can be 460 square miles in size and pack between 40 and 80 million locusts into less than half a square mile. Each locust can eat its weight in plants each day, as I mentioned, so a swarm of that size would eat 423 million pounds of plants every day. And that's just a a locust swarm that's up to 80 million They've had locust plagues in the 20th century that reached the billions. And they've had them, uh, I forget the year it was right now, but I was, there's so much information out there. There was one locust swarm that they could see on radar. So these, I forget which countries there were, I think one was Pakistan. 
But these two countries who are normally at war, they basically decided to get together to defeat the locust plague before they continued their war. They, I forget everything they did. They did tons of things to try to basically defeat these billions of locusts. Now, it mentions drinkers of wine. Now, if you read the book of Joel, the only sin that's mentioned is drunkenness. I'm sure there was more going on at the time. Uh, It's the only one that's mentioned, though. Uh, He makes drunkenness the primary sin at this time. And they weren't really indicted for idolatry or for going after Baal or Ashtoreth or any of the others, but apparently being drunk was prevalent. And evidently, since they weren't going to listen to God's word, he basically sent the locusts for a one-step recovery program, so there was nothing left. Uh, It mentions the word white here, that when they left, it was white. Uh, It's the same word used in the Hebrew for snow. Uh, The voraciousness of locusts is shown by this word in the sense that locusts are known for devouring everything in their path, not just greenery, uh, but wood, leather, and other things. Uh, And after the ingestion of this food, they leave behind a white sawdust-like powder uh, resembling a distance snow. So that's why it's called that. Now, we're not going to get... Also in this verse, it mentions my land, this is God speaking, my land, my vine, my fig tree. And if you look in scripture, it's all referring to Israel, whether it's the land or the nation itself. And we're not going to get too much deeper into that point, but it's one of those things you can look up later uh, when you have a little bit of time. And it says a nation has invaded my land, which is obviously the locusts in this chapter. Now, verses 8 through 12 of chapter 1 says, Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm tree, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. And this is really speaking of the economic collapse of the country. I mentioned the plague of 1915. And this plague resulted in several increases to the price of food. On April 25, 1915, the New York Times described the price increases. And obviously this is a lot lower or higher than now probably. Flour cost $15 a sack. Potatoes were six times the ordinary price. Sugar and petroleum were unprocurable and money had ceased to circulate in that area. Today, locust swarms in Africa and Asia primarily cause billions of dollars in damage, causing those countries to require massive amounts of aid. Now, it said the grain and the offerings and the drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. And what I think is remarkable is, you know, it mentions drunkenness as a sin. And if it was indeed in the time of Queen Athaliah, who was the wickedest queen uh, in Judah's history, she didn't allow or she allowed the temple ceremonies to continue, which means... She didn't care if they were going on, but she was focusing on the gods and religions that she worshipped. But it also seems to show us that, you know, the devil himself doesn't mind if ceremonies continue. 
He doesn't mind if people go to church every week. His whole point is to make sure that they're not committed. He doesn't want us committed because then we make the difference. So the grain offerings and the drink offerings, they were still going on, and yet God said, there's still a problem here. I'm not looking for the ceremony. I'm looking for the heart. Now, verses 13 and 14. Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land of the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. The idea in these verses is basically prepare to do the works of repentance. And Joel instructs them how to do that. He says first to declare a fast. He said making, he said make getting right with God so important that even eating isn't important. And of course at this point it's not like they had a lot to eat anyway. But getting right with God should have been so important that food wasn't even a thought. He said, call a sacred assembly. Call for God's people to come together and repent. And then he said, summon the elders and all who live in the land. The leadership as well as the common people were part of the responsibility of what had happened. And then he says, to the house of the Lord your God, come to the place where you should meet together with God. They had been offering sacrifices the whole time, and yet it seems as if maybe they were doing it out of ritual, as I mentioned, and not out of relationship. And then the last thing they need to do, it says, cry out to the Lord. Simply cry out to God and trust that he's going to respond in mercy. Because God desires communication with his people. He's not looking for us to stand here and listen to me or anybody else. He's looking for his word to impact you to the point where you take action. And when things happen in our life, a lot of times we're really powerless to fix them. And Israel was definitely powerless. The only thing they could do was call out. And sometimes when people get in a tradition or this rut of ceremony, God has to get them to the point where the only thing they can do is look up to heaven and say, okay, Lord, you're right. You got me. I was in this rut. Now you've got me at this bottom, bottom of the hole. I can only do but look up to you now. One more thing I wanted to point out about the locusts eating everything. You can kind of look at the locusts as representative of sin. Sin will eat away at our lives, just like the locusts ate everything away. And just like the locust came in stages, sin can come in stages. It can start small. All, devil, all the devil wants is a foothold in our life. And then it can start to grow, and it can start to destroy your life. But not only that, it can affect those around you. Now, Sometimes we allow ourselves something that maybe it's not a sin or maybe it could stumble or stumble a brother or sister. We allow ourselves something not realizing how it can affect others. Now I was, I knew this, but I always, God brings a fresh way of making me realize it. It was a few days ago and my youngest son Merrick had these weird toy glasses and he put them on, not normally, but he twisted them around backwards. And he said, and I'm going to do an impression of him, I put them on like Pastor Bill does. Because Pastor Bill wears his sunglasses when he's inside on the back of his head. Now, 
He sees Pastor Bill once a week. But he was observant enough to notice that he wears his sunglasses like that. So he, he looked at that and he went, oh, I want to be like that. And that's exactly what happens when we allow things into our lives, whether good or bad. People look at it, even the smallest detail, and go, oh, they allow that. Or, oh, they're doing that. Maybe, maybe I should do that. It just depends. And it's the smallest detail. And kids are the best at picking those things up. And my kids teach me some unique things every day. But that's the effect of sin, the locusts. They, they can eat away at us. Verses 15 to 20. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off from before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. And the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Now, it says the day of the Lord is near. So what has already happened is not the day of the Lord, but it was a prelude. And we're going to discuss the day of the Lord further in a second. But Joel is dealing with three things in this book. The first thing he's trying to do is he's trying to help them realize how to deal with their situation practically. They've had their entire livelihoods wiped out. He's giving them the direction they should go. Second, he's speaking to them prophetically. And again, here we're referring to the day of the Lord. And it's not a single time period, but it's an era. And again, he's saying, if you thought the locusts were bad, this is a sampling of what's to come. And third, he's going to deal with us personally. We can look in the past year and see where locusts have eaten away at us, or sin has eaten away, or maybe we're financially struggling, or marriage is struggling, or parenting struggles. But that's what the locusts and the sin do. They eat away at us. And Joel is addressing everyone who feels that they have been devoured, eaten up, set back, and wiped out in some aspect of their life. And he's not going to end it in this chapter. He's, we're going to get further in chapter 2. Now, chapter 2 is where we're going to discuss the day of the Lord a little bit more. Now, there's two major eras or days spoken of in Scripture. One of them is the day of man. Now, essentially, we live in the day of man. We do our thing. Uh, the day of man is man does whatever he wants. He lives the way he wants to live. Uh, as the... That one crooner said, I did it my way. And that's really the theme of the day of man. And God doesn't force his will on anyone. And this world has pretty much rejected God. So when we do things our way, our way usually ends with suffering and consequences. Now, the day of the Lord, and there's a lot of different views on this too, so I'm going to give you what mine is, is the time which follows after the rapture of the church where God intervenes directly into the affairs of humanity. God's judgment will come down. It's described in detail in many places. There's 19 different verses in the Old Testament that use the phrase, the day of the Lord, and there's four in the New Testament. Uh, God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world for the day of the Lord. 
And the day of the Lord continues into the next event, which is the millennial kingdom, where Christ reigns on his throne for a thousand years. This is a time of peace when everything will be perfect. The day of the Lord starts with tribulation and goes all the way until the end of the millennium. It starts as a day of darkness and ends up in the light of the kingdom age. And I think this is significant because when you look at the Hebrew day, it starts in darkness. They always start in the evening and it ends in the light. Whereas our day starts in the light and ends in darkness. I like the Hebrew way better. Uh, But I think it's representative in that way. Now, this next passage of verses 1 through 11 is controversial because no one has any idea what it's really talking about specifically. It could be future. It could be past. It could be locusts. So I'm going to read it to you. Verses 1 through 11. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling fire consuming stubble. Like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and moon are darkened, and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? So here are some of those views. The first view is that this is a continuing description of the locust plague. Chapter 1 was a summary of what happened, while 2 goes into further detail of the attack. Joel mentioning it as the day of the Lord would be considered a comparative description of the events in question, which is to say, even though it's talking about locusts, the effects of the future judgment are similar in appearance, but even greater magnitude than that of the locusts. Now, there's several reasons to believe it speaks of literal locusts. It mentions a day of darkness, and as we've heard, the plague of locusts can be so thick that it blocks out the sun because of the billions and trillions of locusts. Two, it says, before them the land is like a garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. And again, locusts eat everything. It essentially looks like a desert waste once they're done. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. Now, you wouldn't think this is something that could talk about locusts, but the resemblance of the face of a locust resembles the face of a horse. One of the words in ancient Greece used for locusts describes them as little horses. And I didn't believe that when I first read it, so I looked up their face on the internet and Wikipedia, and you could definitely see that it looks like a horse. Now, with the noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops, like crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. The noise is apparently like a low roar like chariots. 
And again, this is from some of the people who were there in the 1915. And uh, I'm sorry, not this one. There was another one in 1969. Um, and one of the witnesses described it as, I yelled, but my voice was lost in the rush of wings. It's that loud. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. And even today, locusts are a dread to anybody who they come in contact with, as I've mentioned. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. Proverbs thirty twenty seven says, The locusts have no king, yet they all go forth, all of them, by bands or by ranks. And it seems like an adequate description. They climb into houses like thieves through windows. And if you look at the plagues in Exodus 10, it describes this exact thing happening. It says it's in chapter 2, which we haven't read this far yet. It says its stench will go up and its smell will rise. Now, after a plague of locusts hits, they're usually blown out to sea at some point. All those locusts get in the water. They die. They're all washed up on shore. And there's been, when it hits the billions, there's usually four-foot-high piles of dead locusts on the shore that smell. And a lot of times in history, you'll find that that actually brings about a plague and kills a lot of people that comes with it. So that would be another reason that it could be talking about locusts. And the last reason is, in verse 28 of chapter 2, it says, after these things. And it looks after that point that everything is future. Now, that's one view. The next view is that it is all future and that it is describing a future similar to the plague. So as I said, chapter 1 is, this is the plague of locusts. But if you thought that was bad, this is the future that you have if you don't repent. The third view is that it could be poetic language describing the future invading army of Babylon. It was typical of military invasions to ruin everything that they conquered. I've studied this book a lot, not just for this study, and it's really hard to pin down. You know, I've leaned towards all three in the past, and right now I'm thinking it could probably be Babylon. Because... When it comes to verse 12 through 17, God is saying, and I'll read it, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Because he's saying, this is the judgment that's going to come, but I don't want this judgment to come upon you. And God's always relenting. He doesn't want to judge, but he has to judge because it's part of his character, because he's holy. He has to judge sin. But he wants repentance. He doesn't want people to you know, perish for eternity. So he says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's a lot different from the view people give of the God of the Old Testament, isn't it? And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the people who minister before the Lord weep before the temp I'm sorry, between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, 
a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? He's saying the repentance, and as I mentioned before, repentance is so important. Put off food. He's saying, nursing mothers, stop nursing. You need to go and repent. He's saying to the bride and the groom, okay, you're married. You're not going to consummate anything yet. You need to come and repent. This is more important than anything else you're going to do. And again, whether this describes a locust plague or a future invasion of Judah, repentance is what God is looking for. And because they've heard of the warning judgment, God's people should repent, and those who are not God's people should hear of the judgment and repent. And sincere repentance is to turn to God and therefore to turn away from our sin. And if you want to look at it, you're going forward into sin. And it's not going and veering off course a little bit. It's a complete, if Miles McPherson used to have shirts that said repent 180 on it, someone doing a complete flop. And that's what it is. It's doing a complete flop, a change of course. Imagine a train going toward, on a track toward a bridge that's collapsed. If that train doesn't stop and start pushing backwards, that train's going to head towards destruction. So is everyone else who doesn't repent. They're heading for destruction. Now, sincere repentance is done with all your part heart, giving everything you can in surrender to God. Sincere repentance is also marked by action. The action that they were to act with was fasting. It's also marked with emotion. They were to be weeping and mourning over it. Now, not every act of repentance is going to include fasting. It's not always going to include weeping. But if action and emotion are absence, can we really call it real repentance? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it to act it. It says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, one expression of mourning in the Jewish culture, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is tearing of the clothes. It was basically a way to say, I'm so overcome with grief that I don't care what I look like. I don't care that my clothes are ruined. And Joel knew that one, that people could tear their clothing without having a repentant heart, without having a heart that was torn up because of the sin that they had committed. And the idea behind repentance is not God's so mean that if I don't turn back to him, he's going to squash me. I'm not the little ant that God's looking to squash. The idea is God is so gracious. God is so compassionate. God is so to anger. And he's so abounding in love that he will spare me from what I deserve if I just turn back. And ultimately, it's his goodness, according to Romans 2, 4, that leads us to repentance. Verses 18 to 27. Then, then, the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain new wine and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land. With its front columns going to the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green. The trees are bearing their fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their riches. 
Be glad, O people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains and righteousness. He will send you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The flesh, the threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. I believe this is all future. He says three different times. Let's see. I can only see two of them, but I know there's three in there. Never again will my people be shamed. Obviously, that's not true now. Never again will my people be shamed, he says it a second time. We know the only time this is going to happen is in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem. We know that Israel is going to be fully restored at that time. So I believe that these verses speak of the future restoration. But when you look at this, it says then, and you go, okay, well, when is then? Is it after they repent? Is it, you know, after they return? Because Daniel repented. Uh, in the book of Daniel, he prays to God and says he, he, he asked for forgiveness, not just for himself, but for the nation as a whole. So we know that there was repentance in the past, and we know they returned to the promised land, but these things didn't happen at that time. So we know this is future. Now he says, I will make up the lost time, I will restore. And he's not asking us to be perfect. He's asking us to be sincere, and he's going to make up that time. Now again, you look at it three ways. Practically, the Lord is going to restore the, restore the land. Prophetically, the Lord is going to restore not just the land, but the nation. Personally, the Lord will restore the individual. How to react for the day of the Lord. We know the day of the Lord is not going to be averted forever but we're supposed to be preparing for it. In 2 Peter, verses, I'm sorry, chapter 3, 11 to 14, it says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So if we live, if we live holy and godly lives and we look forward to the day of God, it looks like we speed its progression. Now, for those who prepare themselves for this coming, the coming of the day of the Lord, those are the people who are going to find that the Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness. But for those who continue in their sin, all we can say is what Joel said in chapter 1, verse 15, which is, alas, the day of the Lord is at hand and shall come from a destruction, as a destruction from the Almighty. Chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 28 to 321. Verses 28 to 32, chapter 2, I'm sorry. And afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
Your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance as the Lord has said among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now, as mentioned, the day of locusts was the picturing of the bigger prophetic event to take place, the day of the Lord. And just as the day of the locust, Israel repents and turns back to the Lord, so the day of the Lord, many of the nation of Israel will turn back to their God. The day of the Lord does begin the seven years of tribulation and continues through the time known as the millennium. Now, after the restoration... Joel spoke of in the previous chapter, there was going to be a time of ultimate restoration and blessing. And this is going to be marked by an outpouring of God's spirit on all people. Now this began in Acts because Peter quotes Joel chapter 2 verses 28. And he says, God pours out his spirit. So when you remember in the upper room, they were speaking in tongues and everybody thought, oh, these guys are all drunk. And Peter said, nope, this is not what it is. I'll tell you what it is. And essentially, he's, he was saying, I'm going to sum it up. This is the beginning of what God has prophesied in Joel, that God outpours his spirit on all people, that young men are going to see visions and people are going to dream dreams. And so this is the beginning of it. But it's going to be fulfilled. It's going to be, excuse me, the time of great outpouring of the spirit will culminate in the cataclysmic signs in the heavens that are mentioned in the great and awesome day of the Lord. So, obviously, the sun didn't turn dark and the moon into blood when Peter was speaking. But it began right there. And my personal belief is that's where the last days began. There's debate on that, which is fine. That's my personal belief. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. I already read that. Sorry. Now, when it says blood, fire, billows of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Matthew 24 and Luke 21 and many parts of Revelation speak exactly about what those verses 31 and 31 are saying. Um, So you can kind of combine them all. Uh, There are some Bible prophecy commentators who speak of three different darkenings of the sun. And again, it's all future. Uh, We haven't seen that yet with the exception of how locusts block out the sun. But prophetically in God's timetable, we haven't seen those yet. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3. In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There I will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel. For they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land They cast lots from my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine that they might drink. He speaks of the Valley of Jehoshaphat. There is no literal Valley of Jehoshaphat as far as we know. Uh, Some people would say it is the Kidron Valley on the east side of Jerusalem. Other people believe it is symbolic of God's judgment against the nations because Jehoshaphat means Jehovah Judges. And the third view is that when Jesus comes out of heaven for the second coming, puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, and it splits in two, some people would say that is the Valley of Jehoshaphat. 
So we don't know for sure, but there's interesting beliefs out there as to what it might be. And like with all of prophecy, we're going to have to wait to see how it's fulfilled exactly. There I will enter into judgment concerning my inheritance, my people. There's two views on this as well. One is Matthew, uh, we see in Matthew 25, where at the end of the tribulation period, all the nations that survived and made it through the tribulation will be judged there by Christ to see who will be allowed into the millennium. Now, the measurement for judgment here is how did you treat my brothers, the Jews? The criterion is anyone who helps a Jew will be facing the wrath of the Antichrist, whereas anyone who put their life in danger and helped a Jew, despite that, I probably said that confusingly, if you didn't help the Jews, you weren't getting in. If you did, you probably were. That's a simple way to say it. But that was what's basically what some people believe the criterion is. The second belief here is that it refers to the final battle of Armageddon that's mentioned in Revelation 16. The nations will come together in an attempt to destroy Israel, and they'll be judged instead. So when it looks hopeless for Israel, when they are surrounded on every side, Jesus returns to judge the nations. There are other Bible scholars who believe that you can actually fuse both of these ideas into one. I really don't know. I keep studying it, hoping I'm going to come to a good conclusion. Now, verses 4 to 8. Now what have you against me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something I have done? If you were paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you have done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks that you might send them far from their homeland. See, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. Now I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. I personally believe this right here was probably fulfilled by Alexander the Great. Tyre and Sidon were completely obliterated by Alexander the Great. Most likely for their uh, sins against Israel. Verses 9 to 13. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit in judgment on all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes, for the winepress is full and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Trampling the grapes and the winepress and throwing in the sickle are all uh, symbols of God's judgment. Every time you see that, it's always representative of judgment. Unless they're actually referring to something agrarian, but when it talks about something like this, it's always judgment. When he says, let the weakling say I'm strong, so universal is going to be the rage and the anger of Israel's enemies against her that even those who are weak are going to say, I'm strong enough to defeat Israel. And again, that's when God is going to come back and basically destroy them. In Psalm chapter 2, 1 to 6, God's reaction, abbreviated, is basically, are you serious? It says, he who sits in heaven will laugh because of their foolishness. 
Now, 14 to 17, it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the sky will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. The valley of decision is again this valley of Jehoshaphat. And it's called the valley of decision for one of two reasons. There's always two reasons at least for this ideas in this book. Uh, Matthew 25, as I mentioned, is where it is decided who will go into the millennium and who will not. The second is that this is the Antichrist army that have made their decision. Those who attack Israel have made their final decision who they will serve, and they are coming for judgment because of the decision. So that's the valley of decision. Verses 18 to 21 say, In that day, the mountains will drip new wine, and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and and well water and will water the valley of acacias but egypt will be desolate edom a desert waste because of violence done to the people of judah in whose land they shed innocent blood judah will be inhabited forever in jerusalem through all generations their blood guilt which i have not pardoned i will pardon the lord dwells in zion so these verses here begin with a description of the millennium And again, I believe the millennium is in the day of the Lord. And there is no usage of the term millennium in the Bible. Uh, It comes from the Latin milli, meaning thousand, and annus, meaning year. Now, events that surround this millennium are that Christ is going to come for a seven-year period of tribulation to take his church into heaven. After this period of fulfillment, of divine wrath, he's going to return to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Those who come to believe in Christ during the 70th week of Daniel, including 104,000 Jews, and survive will go on to populate the earth during this time. Sorry to rush through this. Other survivors of the hell they experienced on earth will also live during this time. Those who were raptured or raised previous to the tribulational period will reign with Christ over the millennial population. Now, At the end, Satan is going to be let out from his prison that he was put in for this time. But the characteristics are Christ is going to reign over the earth politically from Jerusalem. There's not going to be any war. And even the natures of the animals are going to dwell in harmony. You can see this in Isaiah chapter 11. And as Christians, where are we in all this? We are ruling and reigning with Christ. And what that means exactly is that What we do here and now and how faithful we are determines where, who, and how much we will rule. Our life right now is the training ground for the privilege of that ruling. And that reward for what we will be ruling is decided at the judgment seat of Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 is where that's mentioned. I'm going to skip to the end. Now, we apply Joel the same way that Judah did. We can apply it, apply it practically. We can see the devastating effects that sin has on people's lives. Lives that have been wiped out, 
lives that have no hope without Christ. And we need to show them Christ. And we need to look at our nation as Joel looked at his nation and realize that it needs repentance or that judgment is going to come. And I don't believe that the U.S. is mentioned in Bible prophecy, which either means we're completely inept or we've been wiped off the map. But God holds off judgment as long as possible, and he puts it off temporarily when there is repentance. And again, you know, everybody talks about revival, but few people, or I don't want to say few, I don't know everybody, but it needs to be more universal. Now we can look at it prophetically. The world we see has the chance to repent, and they have to come to a decision. And God is ultimately going to judge the world and usher in his kingdom. And again, I rush through chapter 3. There's so much end times information in there and so much description about what's going to happen. And when you combine it with Zechariah and the other minor prophets in, in Isaiah, there's such a large scope and picture that we see. Now personally, we don't want sin to eat away at our life or the little things. We don't want sin to eat away at our marriage or our parenting or just anything. You know, I, I'm not fond of my job right now. You could almost say that the, the locust of my work is eating away at me at times. But I keep trying to go back to this is what God's provided, so I've got to endure Endure is a much better positive word than tolerate, which is what I sometimes use. But I don't want that to eat away at me. I want to be there because I want God to glorify himself in my life at work. Now, just like, and, you know, if something is eating away, we need to repent. And I need to repent a lot of times and say, Lord, that was the wrong attitude. And just like dead locusts, if we don't deal with our sin and repent... It's going to stink up our lives. Now, I don't know if... I forget which commercial it was. It was some air freshener for a car about people who go nose blind. And, you know, you see this car that looks like a dog driving. You know, don't go nose blind to this. And I I believe if we don't go and deal with our sin, we can become nose blind to it and not realize how much of our life it's affecting. I have an example for this. In my house, for about a month now, in the region of the kitchen, there is a smell. I cannot find the origin of this smell. And it, it's not just a smell, it's a stink. I've cleaned out the fridge. There was nothing in the fridge to clean out. I pulled the fridge out in case something fell behind it. I cleaned up behind it. There was nothing there. But I mean, everything, everywhere I went, I cleaned. Looked through all the cabinets. I looked outside. I looked under the deck. Looked everywhere I could possibly think of. I have no idea where the smell is coming from. And I've gotten to the point where I'm like, I'll deal with it. I don't care. I've actually become nose blind to it most of the time. But that's not what I should be doing. And if there's sin in my life, I definitely shouldn't be doing that. So we don't want to get nose blind. We want to deal with it because God offers redemption and restoration. So if God has, or not God, if sin has eaten away at our life, we just need to come to God. Do the 180, repent. And he's not just going to redeem us. He's going to restore it. It says he's going to bring back the things that sin has eaten away. With that, 
I'm going to close in prayer, have the worship team and the ushers come up. We're going to have communion. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I do thank you for Joel. And Lord, if there is something eating away at us, I pray that you would make us aware of it if we're blind to it. And help us to confess it so that we can have the relationship with you that's unhindered by sin. Lord, bless this morning. And Lord, as we take communion, help us to be grateful always for what you've done. In Jesus' name.